This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. In 2015, several students from Jeb Stewart High School in Northern Virginia decided to try to change the name of the school. It, it, it got really hateful. It got really ugly. Where the, you know, kind of ad hominem attacks and wow. personal attacks, attacks uh, to, to children. After a bitter two and a half year fight, the name of the school was changed to justice. Debbie Ratliff is one of the parents that was intimately involved in that situation. She admits they made mistakes along the way. Now that the name has been changed, the community is trying to heal. And while fist fights are breaking out at school board meetings in other parts of the country, perhaps there's a lesson here that they can learn. The lesson is that we need to listen to each other and really hear each other and be patient and be respectful to each other. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Backlash against racial justice movements. I had a situation where a white woman reacted very negatively to a critique of of white women and the privilege that white women have and the, the whiteness that is often centered in white women's circles. Areva Martin, a black attorney and media expert, she's noticed it happening in her own personal circles. And I, I sense the her reaction was a sense of we're sick of being dumped on. We're sick of people telling us what we've done wrong. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. and I'm a Mexican-American. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. My name is Sasha. I'm originally from South Korea. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. For some time now, in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about when we got to this point in the racial justice and racism conversation. I knew that the day when backlash would start would come. And I think we may be there. Had a conversation with somebody that I think shares some very significant information about this and her own story. Her name is Ariva Martin, and she is an author, an award-winning civil rights attorney, talk show host, commentator. You see her all the time on The Doctors, Good Morning America, CNN, World News Tonight, Dr. Phil, HLN. And she's a go-to expert on compelling legal, political women's children's and celebrity issues and race as well she's got her own show it's called the special report with ariva martin and she joins us now on colors welcome ariva thank you so much for having me so ariva first and foremost would you assess for us the state of race in america what is your assessment of where race stands in america today 
You know, JJ, race and the subject of race is complicated. And when I say that, I mean that in all sincerity because I talk a lot about race, as you said, on my talk show, The Special Report. I talk about race on CNN. I talk about race on so many platforms. And sometimes I feel like we're making a tremendous amount of progress, that we're, we're having some breakthroughs, that we're, we're really grappling with the legacy of, of you know racism and structural racism in this country. And then I feel like we hit a wall. Whenever we get to that point where it gets really, really uncomfortable, I feel like people start to retrench, uh, and you know they, they back away. They 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 say we've gone far enough. You know this is too tough. It's too difficult. Let's set this aside. And so I, I think they're well-meaning people, but I also think they're people that just don't want to face the reality about the racist history, past and present, uh, mm. of this country. What do they say to you when you tell them, because I know you do, that, you know what, if we don't face the hard truth, we're never going to deal with it. What do they say to you? And that's a great question. And, and I hear a range of responses to that question. I hear everything from, we will, we'll get to that, but, you know, we've got to deal with some other issues that are more important. I hear we are grappling with it. This takes time. Change doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I hear well, you know, we are having conversations about race and progress is happening. It may not be visible. Uh, it may not appear that things are changing, but we are starting to see change. And I even hear things like if you didn't use certain words, if you didn't use white supremacy, if you didn't use a uh, race, you know, uh, in, in every other sentence, maybe you'd be able to reach more people. So if you switch it up, if you make it more palatable, if you, if you talk about it in, in less what they call threatening ways, maybe you'd have more people willing to listen. That's, so go ahead. Those sorry. Are some of the responses that that's, I hear. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's the part of the reason that's the part of the reason why we're still struggling with this is because people want to be nice about it, you know, it's nonsensical responses. But but that's what you hear. And and, and I. I can, you know, confirm for you that the, I'm not just the only one hearing that. I, I've interviewed some people that work in the equity, inclusion, diversity field that go into, you know, major corporations that do this work, and you know, they they say there's been a noted change after George Floyd's murder. There was this big push: get them in. We want to train. We want to train. We want the truth. We don't want a sugarcoat. To give it to us real. Make it unapologetic. You know, don't don't. Don't, uh, you know, shy away from the tough topics and only to be told more recently, you know, some of these conversations are making our staff feel uncomfortable. You know, people are, are coming into our office saying that they feel that they're being blamed, that, that, you know, they're being dumped on. Can you change it up? Can you, you know, use uh, words? And even to the point, JJ, where, where the, one of these diversity trainers who has almost 40 years of experience said, she was literally told, don't use the word white, that using white, calling white people white in these conversations, that's making them uncomfortable. <laughs> Come so, on. <laughs> but you know what? You know, so there we are. That's why I started by saying it's complicated. So the same <laughs> company that was willing to pay her fifty hundred thousand dollars to do this expansive training 
you know, here we are 14, 15, 16 months later, and they're saying, don't use the word white because white makes white people uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I, so I, I, I sensed that this was going to happen. And I told the general manager at our station, his name is Joel Oxley, and I've told him several times, my biggest fear is that once we get a few months away from this, or six months or a year, I know that there are people that are waiting biding their time, being quiet, and waiting for some time to pass so they can go back to their old standard behavior. And they're going to start making these requests about, you know, changing this up or watering it down. And, you know, let's be clear about it. It's not my interest to hurt or harm anybody, but I also am not interested in being hurt or harmed anymore myself. And I know that what George Floyd went through, what happened to him, the day that that happened, the old me left, you know, not coming back. And that's because of that. But I figured that that would be the case. I just didn't think people would be talking about the kinds of stuff you're telling me about today. Don't call me white. Yeah. And, and, you know, the backlash is always after after a moment of reckoning, right? After a period of reckoning, there's always a backlash. And I think we are well into that backlash period. And we can point to things like, you know, the voter suppression laws, voter suppression laws that are being enacted or, uh, you know, being proposed in pretty much every state uh, that has a Republican legislature a legislature or a Republican governor, we can look at, uh, you know, the, the battle in Washington over the infrastructure bill, over the voting rights bill there, over, you know, abortion. So it, it is not surprising. And I guess everyone that's been uh, doing this work for any period of time, students of history included, uh, the backlash was expected. There's always the question, though, of when. So how long will the focus be on social justice, racial justice, equity? How long will, will that period of, re- you know, quote unquote, reckoning last? And, you know, sometimes it's shorter periods of time and sometimes it's longer. But it's very clear to me in the conversations I'm having with some of the nation's leading race experts and folks, like I said, that are on the ground doing this work, that we are in a period of backlash and the 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 commitments that were made right after Floyd's murder, Mr. Floyd's murder, and the, the civil unrest, the protests, the worldwide protests that we saw, that uh, there, there's definitely uh, been a change of heart. And, and I'll say in some sense, some you know situations, it's really back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. As difficult as that is for me to say, that, that is the reality. Have you experienced any of that yourself personally? And I'll tell you about something very interesting that happened to me. So uh, I have a lot of white friends who, you know, I live in California and, you know, we we are one of the bluest of blue states. And a lot of my white friends are, you know, Democrats. Some consider themselves not only Dems, but they consider themselves progressive Dems. Uh, And they believe that they've been doing the work over this last 14 months. Many of them have been reading, you know, how to be an anti-racist, how to be an ally. They've been listening to podcasts. They've been, uh, you know, really, in their opinions, trying to uh, understand, uh, you know, from Robin DiAngelo's, you know, what it means for them to to, to be born into white privilege, uh, you know, to some of the uh, black authors that have been writing extensively about this. But I had a situation where 
uh, a white woman reacted very negatively to a critique of, of white women and the privilege that white women have and the, the whiteness that is often centered in white women's circles. And I, I sense the, her reaction was a sense of, we're sick of being dumped on. We're sick of people telling us what we've done wrong. And it's okay if you're talking generically about white supremacists, white supremacists, because of course that doesn't apply to them, right? So it's very easy to separate yourself from the, the, the insurrectionists that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. It's easy to separate yourself from you know, the, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or some of those extremist groups. But when the critique is about middle-class and affluent white women, then my friends who fall you know, squarely into those categories, it's a little more difficult to separate yourself. And I saw a visceral reaction from one of these women when there was a critique of that group. And I sense just this notion that we're sick of being blamed for everything that's wrong in this country and for everything that's wrong with women of color. So, and these are quote unquote, super liberal white women. So I do think again, those difficult conversations when it hits home and it gets more personal, uh, people, you know, have different responses. And and in this case, I I saw this woman really get angry uh, Mm -hmm. and and really shut down. That's very interesting. You do a lot of um, basically advice or you have answers uh, on the shows that people watch you on, as I mentioned earlier, you you do you've been on the doctors and uh, the Doctor Phil show, and um, you know there's the you know the the legal uh, program that you do, uh, rather the the legal appearances that you do on CNN, Good Morning America, and others, and they want your opinion. They want to talk to you about these issues and you know the things that. Uh, you know that we're talking about today, but I'm I'm wondering how do you how do you feel about the way in which you they engage with you about this uh, these topics? I mean, is this a situation where they expect you to have the answers because you're a black woman or you're a black attorney because you're an expert? Do they call you specifically for these things? I know I've seen you talking about things that don't have anything to do with race. You do economics and politics and you know, a lot of things, but I'm just wondering behind the scenes or really underneath it all, do you get the sense that you're in these situations uh, and, and when when people are engaging with you, that they give you the full due respect that you're due as an African-American woman who has done well and has essentially blazed the trail for other people? Another great question, JJ, and I'll say the answer to that is complicated. I'm going to use that word a lot. <laughs> I'll say it's Again? Uh, yeah, uh, some actually absolutely afford me the, you know, full benefit of of my expertise and, and, you know, the breadth of the experiences and, and, you know, knowledge and, you know, lived experiences as well as, you know, educational experiences that I bring to bear. But I would say others definitely put me like they do many black people into a black box and, you know, want us to be in that box and see us as, as pretty unidimensional people who have opinions that are limited to the issue of, of race. Mm. And then I will go even further and say people often want my opinion on race, but they want it in a way that fits with a narrative that they've already 
accepted to be the narrative. Mm -hmm. And again, when we go deep, I mean, and it's very difficult. I mean, imagine having a conversation with a, a white friend who you like, who you go out with, who you have fun with, and you have to even say to that person, you know, when I'm having these conversations, you're not excluded. You know, I, I'm not talking about you personally, but I do want you to be reflective of the role that you play as well. Uh, and one of the conversations I've been having a lot with, with people on my show and just in general is about this notion, you know, frequently white people who have a black friend mm -hmm. <laughs> have checked the box that they're not racist, right? That they're not prejudiced, that they're not biased, that they are accepting of all people. And one of the things that has been revealed through these conversations we've been having on a national level is that that is not, that's not enough. And that checking that box, and I've had to go back and think about some interracial couples and people that I know in my own life, and I've discovered in some of those situations, yes, this person was married to or dated a black person, and they were friendly with me or that person, but they still harbored a lot of, of, of racial animus towards people of color, black people, and they were accepting of us because we were certain kinds of black people. You know, we, we checked a couple of different boxes. So I think that is where this gets difficult because you can't have a conversation about race, you know, without it being intertwined with class and, you know, socioeconomics and education. So the race conversation gets really complicated. And a lot of my white friends, you know, I, I challenge them. Yes, you like me. I, I'm kind of an easy black person to like. I check a lot of boxes. But, you know, beyond me and, and my family and anyone that I introduce you to, what are your feelings of the stereotypes you've been fed? Yeah. I've been rewatching The Wire because of uh, Michael Williams', Williams. You know, unfortunate uh, death. And a lot of our, my friends, we decided we'd rewatch it just in honor of him. And, you know, are, are you how do you feel about the, the, the portrayal of the corner boys, the hoppers? You know, the drug dealers in that, those are black people too. So, you know, when you start thinking about this more broadly, it, the question gets more complicated because a lot of white people as well as blacks have been fed some of the, the negative stereotypes and the tropes that we see portrayed in shows like The Wire. Yeah, that's one of the problems that we have, in my opinion, as a nation, is that box that we want to put people in. And it's not just white people that do it, you know. Some black folks do it to other black folks. Some people of other races do it to people of other races. And it's a very complicated situation, as you say. And that led me to, 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 to I want to ask you this question. Um, you know, I have a firm belief that racism um, is built on the foundation of other destructive behaviors that are completely acceptable in our society. You know, nepotism, cronyism gossiping, ostracization, excluding people. Those are things that systemically have been completely accepted, but people somehow or haven't, at least until George Floyd's death and, and the protest that, that, that blew up afterwards, weren't able to see the connection between those destructive behaviors and how that can lead to or open the door for racism. So what is it that's necessary if you think that I'm on have a point here. If not, please tell me what is it's ne what what is necessary to get people to understand the connection. I'm not sure. I, I agree, JJ, that there's a connection between a person who's involved in, say, the destructive behavior of, of 
gossiping or running people down, as they would say, or, you know, maligning people's characters and racism. I, I don't know if I make that connection. I, I think th- they're well, what, not. What, I think what, what my point is, though, is not that they are necessarily connected, but I'm saying they're built on a foundation. It's hate, you know, things that uh, are, are designed to create uh, to exclude people, to design to essentially take advantage of people's uh, vulnerabilities, scenarios where things that are not pleasant, things that people don't want to happen to them are happening, do happen, and are condoned. I'm saying it, it opens the door to the possibility, not saying that they, you know, a racist has to practice all those things. I'm saying we have a lot of things that go on in our workplaces you know, mm-hmm. where people do all those things and people didn't seem to understand that that's how the door could be open to racism. And the reason the reason why I say that is because every single time, in my view, every time those kinds of situations, which in my case have happened in the past, mm-hmm. every time it happens again, it takes me right back to that racist moment. That's a part of what I'm getting at here. I understand it. Not everybody sees it the same way or, or experiences it the same way, but that's certainly the way it was for me. It was, you know, all these other things were going on at the same time that this racism was being practiced. So whenever it happens, it takes me right back to that moment. Yeah, it, it triggers for you. Yeah. You know, and, and obviously there are some situations, I think, where that those kinds of destructive behaviors that you just described are inextricably linked to discriminatory and racist conduct that we see in the workplace, we see in the community, we see in so many different settings. But, but you know, I think there's something so unique about race that, again, makes it so complicated, makes it so difficult because it's, it's, it's taught. <laughs> you know, you, you take children are, are, are taught from the beginning of their life, and even if it's not an act of teaching, like parents sitting down, you know, saying, "Look at this picture. This black person is bad. This white person is good." But the images they see from a baby, you mm-hmm. know, that, that's what is projected to them. Like I'm saying, if you're watching The Wire, if you're dropped out of the the you know sky into uh, a, a living room and the wire is on, the images that you get is that black people are just violent and they're ruthless and they're immoral you know those images are portrayed on tvs in the media uh you know in movies in in so many ways and kids no matter how quote-unquote liberal their parents are or how anti-racist their parents may think they are if you are a little white kid and you grow up segregated, right? Because our neighborhoods, despite all of the legislation and civil rights acts are still very segregated. And you are in a predominantly white community, whether it's Los Angeles or St. Louis or Chicago, and you don't have any interaction with with people of color, be they black people, Latinos, Asians, but you see these images, you see these magazines, you see the social media images. You know, how can you not believe that your whiteness is somehow superior? So, yeah. I mean, how, how do you not, you know, start to internalize that? And then you get to a school that, depending on your state, may teach you <laughs> about the history of this country in such an inaccurate way that that even gets, you know, it, it just gets reinforced. And that's why, you know, it, it, it's so 
difficult uh, when we're talking about how do we start dismantling structures and how do we dismantle systemic racism. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I was having a conversation this morning about uh, feminism and, and the, the internal fight between white feminists and, and women of color feminists. And it came up about the Texas abortion laws and feminists, white feminists wanting black and brown feminists to join in the fight to fight this you know, restrictive Texas abortion law. And the black and brown women are saying, but wait a minute, you guys, white women voted for these legislators in Texas. You voted for Abbott and she had stats like 65% of white women had voted for Abbott. So you saw this coming and yet now you want us to join you in fighting the very people that you voted to put into office. Uh, <laughs> but when we needed you on uh, black maternal deaths, black infant mortality, you weren't there. Uh, so, you know, that whole, so when we talk about racism, again, those white women that voted for Abbott didn't think that they were per se, I would imagine most of them didn't go into that, you know, go into the, the voting booth that says, I'm a racist and I'm voting for a racist. But the end result of Abbott's policies, whether it's not allowing masks in schools when, you know, African-Americans and Latinos are disproportionately impacted by COVID or enacting this restrictive voting, uh, restrictive voting laws that, you know, are going to disenfranchise black and browns or voting for this restrictive abortion law, which, you know, is going to disproportionately impact black and brown and poor women. Uh, essentially, that's what these white women did. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that is very interesting. So <laughs> you, let me ask you this question, and I don't want to try to get to go down a rabbit hole here. But some years ago, it was presented to me that a part of the reason why some people in some states and some places were uh, interested in pushing uh, abortion, um, laws to prevent abortion, was based on, on, a, on a racist, was based on a racial um, premise. And that is wanting to stop women that were white from having an abortion. Didn't have anything to do with women of color or minority women, but it was because of those people were interested in stopping white females from getting abortions. Have you ever heard that? Is that true? And stopping white females so that white, but, but go a little deeper for me. If you, if you the know, objective, as I understood it, was because of concerns about the browning of America. Yes. Okay. That's what I thought you were saying. Yes. I've heard that theory that it was about ensuring that white women continue to procreate and that the white race continue to grow so that they wouldn't be outpaced. Uh, by, you know, women of color. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I've studied this. What I do know is that I don't, I don't know if there weren't some people whose that was their sole objective or agenda in being, you know, anti-abortion. But mm -hmm. we do know that a lot of the laws that we see are, are rooted in a, you know, patriarchal structure where women just aren't don't have the same power, the power dynamics between women and men are different, and that men get to make decisions about women's bodies, about women's reproductive rights, uh, and, and that's rooted in, you know, our male, white male, heteronormative 
patriarchal system. Uh, so it, it's not, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a big leap to get to that theory that you just uh, posited, which is uh, tied up in that is, yes, we want more white children born because yeah. that allows us to continue. Well, I have heard it and I've heard it for decades uh, and I haven't um found any proof of it, but I just wanted to ask you, because I know you've probably been out there and possibly have heard it, but one one final thing I'd like to ask you before we wrap this up. Um, you, uh, as I mentioned to you before, you you talk about this a lot, and you, as you said, you've studied this uh, as, you know, anybody that's of color or even not, it doesn't matter what race you are, m- people are aware of this now, uh, but the future, getting to the next step, getting to the next place. How do we proceed on this such that we learn the lessons that were, were learned, uh, you know, after Memorial Day of 2020 and George Floyd's death and, and all of the other folks who, uh, you know, died, you know, in this cause as well. Um, what's the next step in racial healing nationwide? I think we can't, we can't fix what we refuse to acknowledge. So you can't fix a problem that you don't acknowledge. So I think what we must continue to do is push. And we must continue to have these uncomfortable, difficult, complicated conversations. You know, we can't keep getting right up to the point of breakthrough and then pulling back. That gets us what we have, this continuous cycle of focus on social justice, backlash. You know, elect Obama and then elect Trump. You know, we can't keep going with that cycle. And we got relaxed after Obama. You know, we 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 do, we were so delusional that we even thought we were in what we called a post-racial society. You know, we thought that for about five minutes, you know, until we were slapped upside the heads and reminded that we were far from that. So what I say must continue to happen before we can talk about healing is we have to keep purging. We have to keep talking. We have to keep pushing we can't let up. So when, and we can't allow weaponized tears of those that are complaining that they're being targeted or their feelings are being hurt because your feelings being hurt is nothing like the black folks who are dying on the streets because of police violence or because of, you know, the injustices that happen every day in this country. So, you know, we just can't let up. And that's Unfortunately, you know, what I feel like a lot of people are ready to do, they're ready to say, well, we tried. You know, we threw some money at the NAACP. We posted black uh, squares on our Instagram page. We bought more black books. You know, black authors have, have had a moment. Black bookstores have had, had a moment. You know, we, we hired black speakers to give Black History Month speeches. All of that's fine and good. But none of that is going to matter if we don't keep pushing through and keep challenging those in leadership, challenging those in positions of power, challenging those that have a platform to just keep pushing through. And even when it gets uncomfortable, uh, you know, if anything, when it gets uncomfortable, you know you're getting close. You know you're making some headway. So, you know, don't shy away from the the uncomfortableness of a conversation. Uh, Keep forging ahead, keep pushing ahead. That's what I try to do every day on my show. That's what I try to do in my commentary. Uh, you know, I, I get a lot of hate mail sometimes for it. I get <laughs> called all kinds of names, 
uh, that un- none of which are on my birth certificate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I remind myself of that. It's not what you call me. It's what I answer to. So, you know, but folks like you who are interested in this work, you know, we all have an obligation to just not give up. You know what? You are fantastic. Um, you went to Harvard Law School, correct? I did. University of Chicago. I did. Rosati Kane High School. <laughs> okay. You're all the way down to the granular. Yes. I'm a Rosati Kane cougar. <laughs> <laughs> The thing I like about you when I see you on TV is that I know that there's some fire there. You know, you never get to that fire point, at least on the, you know, the talking head segments that I see you on. But this one that you did with yeah, us today. You get those, th- those three minutes and, you know, you got to keep what I tell people is one thing about that, which I, I am honored and privileged is because you got to stay in the conversation. Right. Yep. Uh, and that's that's so critically important. If, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. So. Uh, you know, I, I was taught that early on, and, and it's so important to lift your voice in, in as many places as you can. Uh, and it's, it's it's okay if you don't get to say everything you want to say when you have three minutes, because you, there are lots of ways to get that message out. And thankfully, programs like yours, podcasts, social media, there's so many ways we can lift our voices. Right. Are you working on any books? I am. I have a new book coming out at the end of the month. I'm super excited. It's called Awakening, uh, Ladies' Leadership and the Lies We've Been Told. Uh, It hits at the end of the month. It's what I did during the pandemic. I decided I would uh, use that time. I would lay off some Netflix specials and I would be productive. So uh, I've been really moved by what I saw happening, the, the conversations that we were having in the country around how do we fix our police system and do we keep putting band-aids on it or do we really think about reimagining policing mm-hmm. and uh, pulling from some of those same arguments and drawing some parallels to what I was seeing happening around those conversations? Uh, the concept of awakening came to me and it's really about how do we dismantle some of the structures that have been in place forever uh, designed to in many ways uh, prevent women from achieving their, their highest potential, whether it's in government or business uh, and I use some of the, the parallels that we, I, I draw from some of what we saw happening around civil rights and police right, uh, police brutality and rights of, of individuals, particularly black individuals, you know, to be treated with respect and dignity by police. So mm-hmm. super excited about the book to get out. I'm going to hit the road, whether it's virtually or in person, but do some events and, and talk to women and men all over this country about, yeah. you know, what, what does it, what have we been told as women and how do we, you know, uh, deprogram ourselves from some of these uh, lies? Because yeah. We've been told a lot of them. So it, that's what I've been working on. It is called Awakening. Ladies, leadership, and the lies we've been told. She is Ariba Martin. And we are very grateful that you took time to talk to us today, Ariba. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure to sit down with you. You're listening to Colors. Hi, my name is Kiki, and I am from the Massachusetts suburbs, but I was actually born in China and adopted and raised by a white American family. On one side, uh, they are second-generation immigrants from Portugal, and on the other side, it's a Swedish-Italian-American blend. 
So I think growing up, being Asian American, but also being raised in a white household, um, just put me in between a lot of worlds. I didn't realize until college that everyone else would see me as being more Asian American. And personally, I would identify more with my white peers. Um, and I kind of struggle with working for racial justice right now. I think that it's easy to gloss over being Asian or Asian American or Pacific Islander or indigenous. And I think that rightfully so, there's a focus on black and Latinx folks right now. But I wonder if there's more room for intersectionality as we continue to have these dialogues. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Let us know what you think. You have show suggestions, guest suggestions, just thoughts. You're just thinking. You want to share what you're thinking. Let us know. And if you want to send us your thoughts on race, just record your name, your race and ethnicity and location and your thoughts up to two minutes and email it to us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on the wonderful Podcast DC app. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. COVID vaccines, a secret disinformation campaign. They wanted me to share wrong information about Pfizer. It started online, but flyers ended up on doorsteps. It said it causes sterility. Traced back to Russian intelligence. Russian agents working on U.S. soil. Millions of Americans gobbled it up. A nightmare for U.S. healthcare officials. Time-consuming and exhausting. I'm J.J. Green. Join me for the COVID Conspiracy Crossover event. A joint presentation of the Target USA podcast and the Colors podcast. Featuring the National Football League Players Association, Dr. Anthony Fauci, former FBI and CIA personnel, social media influencers, COVID Conspiracy. We connect the dots between foreign disinformation campaigns and Americans' refusal to get COVID-19 vaccines. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. My name is Gretchen Soren. I'm African-American. My name is Rajesh. I'm American, but my race is mixed with Indian and Hispanic. My name is Karen Hansen. I'm white. I'm JJ Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. So we're done with another episode. And as we go, I want to say thank you to some very important people. Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Jocelyn Chesson, Melissa Howell, Deanna Howell, Kristen Bartolin, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Ellie Rowe, Thomas Warren. We also want to thank Dimitri Sotis, James Brown, Serbino Sanderford Walker, Tamika Ojor, Jason Richardson, Kevin Stanfield, Jamal Bowens, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Earl Uriah Robinson, Rick Massimo, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, Thetford Collins, Mark Recton. And for the music, thank you to Offshane. Thanks, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic. And thank you to you. We really appreciate you listening. And as we go, I just want to remind you, keep talking to each other. And just as importantly, keep listening to each other. This is Colors.
a dialogue on race in America.